there was only one candidate for this week's word of the week. And just thinking about it, my heart just clenches and gets very heavy. The word of the week is superhero. The literal definition of a superhero is this, a hero possessing extraordinary, often magical powers. And Chadwick Boseman was definitely a superhero. He was definitely extraordinary. He often possessed magical powers. It's just been a little over a week since Chadwick died, and I can't say that my heart feels any lighter. I met Chadwick a couple times, um, most notably at the Hollywood Black Panther premiere in 2018. He was kind, gracious, sweet, all those good things that people have said about him since he has passed. Our interactions were often in passing, but he never was in a bad mood and always just had such an easy way about him. I mourn him not because I really knew him. I mourn him because he gave the world far more than we could ever give him back. According to reports, Chadwick was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2016. Here's some of the movies he did since his diagnosis. Captain America Civil War, Marshall, Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame, 21 Bridges, The Five Bloods. He did this through chemotherapy, surgeries, and God knows what else. Most actors can't do what he did in four years, their entire career. He not only gave us excellence, he gave us something that is a rare commodity these days. He actually gave us hope. I think back to when Black Panther opened. I have never seen black folks that excited about practically anything. We was dressing up, dragging our mamas, daddies, granddaddies, little cousins, aunties, everybody to see this movie. We bought out theaters, myself included. We shouted Wakanda forever like it was God bless America. For a moment, we said, fuck a dap. We just crossed our forearms across our chests, just like King T'Challa whenever we saw each other. Of course, we knew Wakanda was fictional. We knew that Black Panther was an invented hero in a fake universe. But whereas most movies and most Black leading characters make us feel powerless, Black Panther made us feel powerful, especially kids. One of the most heartbreaking things that I've seen since Chadwick passed was little Black kids crying as they held mock funerals for their Black Panther action figure. I've heard a lot of people say since his death that they should just retire the Black Panther role. But with all due respect, here is why the people who say that are wrong. Chadwick Boseman died, not Black Panther. Black Panther is an ideal, just like Batman is Superman. Black Panther represents pride, integrity, determination, and most importantly, justice. It needs to live on because I believe that's what Chadwick Boseman would want. But I also believe that's what we need. We need to be able to dream, to wonder, to feel powerful and invincible. We don't need to be constantly fed limitations or defined by them. We need to know what's possible. We need to hope. As I said, that's what Chadwick gave us because that's what a superhero does. And that's our word of the week. All right, now let me get to today's guest. Now, while he didn't quite leap buildings in a single bound, uh, my guest probably leaped a few would-be tacklers, especially when he was a standout wide receiver and linebacker at Beverly Hills High School. He played at Oregon, had a solid, though not necessarily spectacular, uh, NFL career. But lucky for him, football was not his only calling. It seems he had another destiny to fill as a creative his life story has become a hit series on Netflix. And let me tell you, it is a terrific watch. Uh, the series called All American is about a high school football player juggling two worlds. He originally starts off playing at his neighborhood high school in Crenshaw in Los Angeles, but he then eventually is recruited to play for Beverly Hills. So this entire series is about juggling where you're from versus where you're at as a young black man. It is exceptional. 
But I shouldn't be surprised considering what an exceptional person Spencer Pacinger is. He is up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered to talk about not just All-American, but just what it's like in general when your life becomes a television show. So, Spencer, I'm happy to to know that I'm in your old stomping grounds of Ladera Heights. And along those same lines, something I didn't realize until a few hours before we taped this podcast is that you are part owner or own Hilltop Cafe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was the I was the first investor with uh, my guys, uh, Yanni Hagos and AJ Relon uh, back in 2017. Uh, I moved into the neighborhood in 2016. Uh, and then, you know, just talking with them and then wanting to put a concept here, but not knowing what, and me realizing like, we don't really have the options that other neighborhoods have. Uh, we just started thinking about what could we put in the neighborhood. So we, we kicked around the idea to a coffee shop with our friends and family. And a year later, it was up and running. So Hilltop Cafe is, uh, it's an eatery. Uh, I assume when we're not in a pandemic, obviously a cool coffee shop where you can go in, hang out and, um, you know, uh, kind of do what you do in a coffee shop. Is Issa Rae also an investor? Is this the same one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So about a year into our operation, when we were building out our second location, um, you know, she was, she's from the area. Uh, she grew up in the area and I believe lives in the area that I'm in now. Um, I don't know if I can say that. I'm not trying to put it on glass. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, she, she loved the concept. She was friends with, with our founders of it. And was like, yo, I want to, I want to be a part of this. I want to buy into this. So, it is, for all intents and purposes, Issa Rae's coffee shop and take it around with it. I'm just in the shadows. <laughs> well, I, I, it was a very specific reason I brought this up because, um, you know, me and my husband, we just moved into this new house. So we're getting a lot of work done. It was turnkey ready, but, you know, you want to customize everything. So they were retailing our kitchen. So for a week, we had to eat nothing but you know, uh, Postmates, you know, Uber Eats, whatever. So we on that delivery style life. Now, because of everything that's happened in this country, Postmates very intentionally listed, has an icon where you can support black businesses in your area. So of course, that was the first place we we clicked. Hilltop Cafe was one of the first ones that came up. So I was like, man, I think this is the one that Issa Rae is an investor in. So that, of course, inspired me to try it. So what were your thoughts on it? Was it good? Was it? You no, know, I'm about to get into that. I'm about to get into this. Okay. okay? Here we go, here we go. Look, I consider myself a foodie. I'm a food connoisseur. The banging breakfast sandwich is one of the best breakfast sandwiches I ever had. It's top five and it ain't five. And I and I and I put this on Instagram too, because I was just like, yo, I don't know who does this. I mean, I knew it came from you guys. Whoever is the chef, compliments. Cause we ordered from there three times in one week. And we're just we're so excited when this pandemic, like when we're able to like go and sit, we come in the hilltop. I'm just letting you know, <laughs> just for the sandwich. I have to try not to order from there at least like once every other day and like spread the wealth amongst other black businesses because it's so easy to say, you know what, I'm not making coffee at home today. I'm gonna just go down the street and get it from the shop. But we like, even when we, when we opened it, we just thought like coffee was only the main selling thing. It wasn't until people started recommending it, the food to their friends and wanting us to stay open later that we realized the food was an actual thing. We had the food up just cause we said, Oh, well, we need to have food in a coffee shop, but we weren't thinking like that was going to be the mainstay of the location or of the, of the business. Right. Well, you guys did a great job. I don't know how you undersold this food because I expected the food to be, you know, very much like coffee shop food, like, you know, maybe a couple bagels, something like that. But I was like, hold up, because y'all got shrimp and grits, too, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Like, y'all yeah. got some food yeah. on there. And so we, um, it was another, my husband got the banging breakfast sandwich and something else. I don't remember what it was, but the banging breakfast sandwich is perfect. So I just, this made doing this podcast with you even more special. <laughs> so I can personally compliment you on this banging breakfast sandwich. Listen, and it is a 100% a winner. We live in a black neighborhood and we had to come correct with the seasoning. Like it couldn't Yo, be anything bland. You ain't lying. Like we had to come correct. <laughs> like the fact that like my aunts and my mom were like, y'all did a good job. Like that's all I needed. That's the cosign you want, <laughs> right? Uh, I, and I will say from coming from 
living in the mid Wilshire area to over where we are now, that's been one of the great, uh, not necessarily surprise, but one of the great things is that the ethnic food in this area is so good. So many Jamaican restaurants. Um, you know, obviously you have Hilltop, a lot of New Orleans uh, style stuff over here, which I was like, yo, like this is uh, this is not exactly what I expected. Like I knew that the neighborhood was trying to very much to maintain its roots, but I also knew that there was a lot of new businesses, uh, taco spot. Um, that's great that we found. So I've been really pleased. My waistline, not so much with all the food. Shit, you and me both. <laughs> You're right. Um, but speaking of your old neighborhood, since we're on, on the topic, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Spencer, his life inspired the television show All American. And I guess to further, it, it, it's funny how you kept being in my world without me ever having met you. So I get my hair braided in Inglewood. And because this is a long process, typically my braider has, she is an unofficial TV critic. She watches everything. So I went in there one day and she was like, got to get you on this new show. I was like, all right, All American. My husband watches it like he's a big fan. He was on it before I was. He he had told me to do it, but I have six hours to kill in the in the braiding shop. So I'm just like, <laughs> let's let's go through all of it. Yeah. This is perfect. We watched a season. We watched almost all of the first season for sure, and then I finished the rest um, at home. And it's a really like it's a really great show. And I'm sure you probably hear this all the time that people probably call it like underrated or undiscover however you know those those platitudes yeah. a secret right like that what uh so far like how have you felt about the reaction to the show because everybody i know who's in on the show i know no one who doesn't like it and and doesn't get it like everybody who i know watches this show really really messes with it so how have you felt about the reaction it's been insane uh from our first season you know being the little show that could on CW when every other show on CW was like supernatural, super, superhuman, superhero or whatnot. And then you just have this show about a black kid in South Central, like dealing with, you know, his woes. But once people saw it on Netflix that first season, and this was while we were building out season two, realizing like, yo, we're not just this little show anymore. Like we're, we're starting conversations where we're having people talk across the lines to each other, you know, just, just opening up that dialogue. I think, from the jump, that's what we wanted from day one, uh, which is to have conversations. You know, I have, I have like 10 year old black girls and like 60 year old white men hitting me up in my DMs for the same reason as why they like the show. So at the end of the day, I, I love it. And I'm just excited to dive into season three. Because this is a story that is based loosely off your real life. And I think it's important that people know, you know, that it's loosely because uh, I don't, don't want to give too much of it away. But there are some dramatic things that happened that did not happen to you. Like you, yeah. you didn't get shot. Okay, <laughs> I'll give away one spoiler. Like you didn't get shot, right? But you don't know that. Um, I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, that's, <laughs> I, just, I, I read that you have not been <laughs> shot. Okay. <laughs> but that being said, though, because you obviously you lived your own life, you know what Hollywood does. Were you reluctant to allow them to add these dramatic bits that didn't actually happen to you? That was by far my biggest learning experience in this in this profession. You know, from from the timeline to even when everything started to happen was like we knew we were getting a pilot ordered um, going into my last game of the season. So when I got cut before that last game, I retired. Like I'm gonna just try to make headway into into All American, what we knew All American to be. But when we were writing the pilot out. You know, the first draft that I saw was completely different than all the stories I told them. And that was a long process in itself, just diving back into my past, like understanding what was really fucked up and what, you know, oh, this this happened to me. I think about it now, like that shouldn't have happened to me the way it happened. Like it was very like therapeutic for me to go back in time and, and rethink of these moments. But when I'm telling them to the to the writer's room and our and our showrunner and whatnot. And then they come back with a story. The first, the very first draft was completely different from what we know it to be. I'm like, wait, wait, wait what is, what are y'all doing? Like, this isn't, that character never existed. Like, this dude's black, not Latino. Like, it was, it was, I had so many questions about the process. And that's when they sat me down. I was like, listen, the fact that it's inspired by, like, you have to allow for creative freedom to make, uh, just to make a show that, that could, you know, span across, you know, many demographics. So, you know, when we were, after I got that lesson, I was like, all right, 
I'm still mad, but like, let me see where this goes. And I, I felt like for the most part, they they stay true to a lot of the a lot of the bones of of my memories and my stories that I told them. But at the end of the day, it's just to make a compelling show. Okay, well, let's go back a little bit. So you played seven years in the NFL. Um, at what point did you really? Uh, and you did it under the intention of like you wanted to retire. I, I've read this, and you can certainly clear it up if it's not true. You wanted to retire by the time you were thirty. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was my goal. And it uh, obviously looking back now, it seemed kind of crazy that like this undrafted guy was like, I'm going to play seven, eight years and then retire. Because um, I just, you didn't know if you could even get to that, get to that level of playing seven, eight years. But I had a, I had a really good mentor. I, I would call him my first mentor. His name is James Harris. He was uh, at the University of Oregon with me. Um, but he just saw something in me and said, hey, you're an econ major. Like you're doing things in the community. Like I want to plug you into the community in terms of business. So, you know, two or three years, my last two or three years at Oregon, you know, I was doing the books for, for a bar. I'm talking coming in before practice and like, you know, literally doing their bank bags, doing their, their finances and stuff and then going to practice. So I just carried that into the league to the point where I said, okay, I'm going I'm to commit my 20s to playing football as long as I can. But once I get to 30, that's where like business comes out. That's when like the other side of it comes out. And, you know, every off season, I would do a new internship or a job shadowing experience or, you know, those Monday nights when the teams have dinners or fundraising, or that, I'm, I'm getting business cards and everything. But yeah, when it, when it got to, when I got to like 26, 27, I started to think like there's more to life than just hitting people. And I don't know if my coaches felt that from me, but I think that's when I leaned into my hobby at the time, which was writing. You know, I, I always thought I would be, you know, econ major. So it's like, I was, you know, the big suit, the tie, Wall Street, whatever. But I just had this little hobby on the side that like took my mind away from everything, which was writing. And uh, it wasn't until probably my last year to where I realized like, all right, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not even going to try to say, maybe I can go to 31. Maybe I can go to 32. Like at 29, I said, I'm, I'm done with it. So when did the thought bubble happen that you decided that your life was something that should be a television show? It happened during a bye week in um, 2016, towards, towards the end of the year in 2016. Um, I had been writing just casually for like two years at this point, short stories. Uh, just literally things that like happened in my life that I thought might be funny or might be interesting or ideas pop in my head or whatnot. And one of my good friends, Skylar Ort, hit me up and said, hey, I know you're writing like my roommate sells in the unscripted space. And, you know, Next time you're back in LA, why don't we all get together, you know, have a beer and just talk, maybe something will come from this. So that bye week I stopped over at their apartment and it was, you know, we were probably watching a game or something like a Thursday night game or whatever. And my, my now producing partner, closest friend, Dane Mork, he went to Palos Verdes high school, which is like 20, 30 minutes away from Beverly, but it's a completely different world. Like Palos Verdes is like the West Virginia of the West Coast. Like you don't know what happens. They just govern themselves up there. Like, I'm like, damn, that's a hell of a description. <laughs> it's, I'm telling like, even like, and it's a description that came from him. Like they are, they are Texas football. They are like, like West Virginia mountain mysterious. Like they don't come down the hill. We don't go up there essentially. But we just started talking about, you know, what, what was it like growing up in Beverly Hills? And that's when I corrected him. Like, oh no, I, I grew up in South Central, but I just went to Beverly Hills. Oh, how was that? Well, you know, I'd wake up at, you know, 445, 5 o'clock in the morning, get my little brother ready, drop him off at my grandmother's house, then trek it across town to go to school. And he's like, bro, I'd wake up at 750 and get to school with five minutes to spare. Like, he, it was just a completely different world. So I thought nothing of it, honestly. Um, it was just a cool conversation with somebody else that, like, we kind of knew of each other's schools and played against each other when we were younger. Um, but a few weeks later, we he hit me up and said, Hey, a show he's working on is kind of dead in the water, but he had a conversation about my story with a producer uh, named Robbie Rogers. And that's when he said like, Hey, do you mind writing up like a one page document as to like what you went through? Like if it was a story, what would you write to be your story? And that's when I wrote up this like literally one page, two paragraph document, sent it off. And then three weeks later, I'm getting a call from like a head of Warner Brothers. Like, Hey, let's have a meeting. So just to further prove how small the world is, Robbie's in my yoga. We go to the same yoga studio. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's amazingly bendy. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he puts me to shame every time we do. That's some soccer players, man. 
a soccer player. Yes. Every time we do a class together, he is, I am amazed by his nimbleness um, and my lack thereof. So you, you go from this idea that then uh, turns into a show, um, you know, and just for people who have, or even if you haven't watched All American, is that as you put the, ba- the, the, the crux of it is true. It's like, it, it is about a kid who's living in two different worlds and, you know, trying to make the football thing happen. Some of the more, the gang elements and stuff like that, that some of it was a little bit, you know, Hollywood eyes, you know, if you will. And then of course the, the lack of relationship with father and with, with his father, although there's a big kind of spoil that happens there that I'm not going to give away for, for the people uh, that haven't s- seen it. That part was not necessarily um, obviously your life, but just going through this process where you're seeing yourself on screen, it's a business for you. So is it hard for you to stay, uh, you know, emotionally unattached or are you still like really attached to material? Cause it is essentially about you. Yeah, I would say yes and no. I, you know, early on, I had to come to the reality that Spencer James is not Spencer Pacinger. Uh, and, you know, those first couple episodes, you know, they're calling Spencer on set and I'm messing up shots because I'm like, huh? <laughs> like literally in the background looking at the camera because they call. And you also have a role in the show, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm so a lot of people are finding that out. It's like I've been in the background of all the football scenes from episode one. Uh, just sort of an Easter egg. Um, but yeah, I, I, kind of, I had to make that distinction that Spencer James was just, he just wasn't Spencer Basinger. Um, even to the point when, you know, talking to Daniel and him asking me like, hey, what, what would you want me to portray? It was like, nah, make Spencer James you. Like, don't feel like you need to follow me or talk like me or whatever. You know, just bring the best version of Spencer James you think is going to convey on screen. But, you know, at the end of the day, like sometimes I do have to protect my family from the story because, you know, some things that happened with my mom and dad, you know, they happened, but it was a different way. Or maybe we're painting my mom in a different light and my dad in another light. So those are always like the, the scary conversations. And I'm like, damn, mom. So like in like two episodes, some shit's going to happen. And like, I didn't write it, but like, I couldn't say no. Uh, so you know, they, they love it. Um, I love that I can have those conversations to him. You know, even even me and my dad have had a handful of conversations in that aspect where he's like, whenever my dad says, say, dude, that's when you know he was mad about something, but he had time to think about it. And his say, dude, was like his peace offer. Like, all right, now I can talk about it. Um, but yeah, it's, just, it's making that distinction that like Spencer James is not me, but also I do have to like sort of protect my family from from stories because I know they're going to get a thousand questions from their friends uh, about what's real and what's not. So I'm just, just giving them a little, a little caution before. But does that also happen to you where people are like, so man, what was it like to get shot? All the time. <laughs> I, to, every time I open up my phone, it's, Hey, did you really get shot? Or tell me who Coop is or, you know, where's Sean in real life? Rest in peace to Sean. And like, it's funny because I, I often deal with like, the idea, like, because Spencer James has become so polarizing in the community and sort of a staple of, like, you know, you want your kid to grow up like him or you want him to handle situations. Like, yes, he does get, like, a little angry too often. Um, but sometimes I deal with, like, man, maybe I didn't go through it exactly how, you know, people are seeing it, but people are reaching out to me based on what they've seen. So I'm talking people that have grown up without fathers or have these like hard, hard relationships with their father. Like, yes, I had, a, I had a really tough time with my father to where he was essentially not in person for like four or five years of my life. But we still had a verbal conversation. We, we were still talking on the phone, but um, just having these people hit me up and, and talking about how like, you know, their father's never been there or how they got shot or they got paralyzed. I'm like, I'm so happy the show is related to you. I didn't personally go through it, but I'm just I'm just happy you have some type of representation on the show. So, uh, you know, once it uh, is made and, uh, you know, you have a show that's on on television, how has the it going from CW uh, to Netflix and, and being more married to that? How is that? It kind of helped the show because that's I mean, especially now that people like to binge things. Yeah. Like how what was what has having that Netflix uh, presence done for the show? I mean, I can say hands down, I think Netflix saved us from being canceled the first season. Um, you know, we had high hopes for for people to find the show on CW that first season. And the numbers were strong for the most part, uh, but they were definitely in that realm of like, 
it can get cut and nobody would think anything of it. You know, good show, but one season, that's all. It wasn't until we went to Netflix in uh, 2018 that people found it and it became like the number, I think it was like the number two show amongst like a lot of different demographics for a few weeks. And that is what gave us the green light. Now that the show's, now that season two's on and, and literally happened at the perfect time in, in quarantine where everybody had time to watch it, I think it's just given us a boost even more. Um, but I think Netflix has been a great partner with us and pumping the show and, and putting it in front of people's screens. And uh, you know, hopefully we get six, seven, eight, nine more seasons. Uh, so how much input did you have into who played you? <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. I, I, I didn't have too much input. You know, they would send me, I, I was still busy kind of having one foot in and out the door of NFL and, and still training a little bit and, and doing some like business stuff with the NFL. Um, but when they would only send me like the strongest contestants, like the, the strongest ones. And, you know, I, Da Vinci, um, who's on the show as well, you know, I think he was a finalist for Spencer as well. And I talked to him before the show was even a thing. And the fact that we were able to bring him back uh, is such a testament to his acting abilities. But Daniel was literally just this tape that came out of nowhere. You know, we found, we like literally across the country put out this like nationwide call. And for like two months, we couldn't just land on the right one. And then we got this tape from, from this like British actor. I saw that he auditioned for, um, John Lewis and Selma and, and a few other roles and whatnot. And I, I remember saying, I was in a coffee shop in New York watching the tape and I was like, yo, it's good actor to me. If he gets the role, he gets the role. Great. And a week later they said that he got it. So everybody always gets that question sometimes like, oh, if you were somebody, if it was your life story, who would play you? And everybody wants to say somebody who's like devastatingly handsome and gorgeous. <laughs> and Okay. So when they were talking about casting, I was like, oh, go get Keith Powers. Like that, like, <laughs> that's like six, two, six, three, light skin. Like kind of looked like him when I was, when I was younger, like just go get him and we'll be good. And they're like, that's not how this goes. How like, it is works. <laughs> yeah, I was like, but but we look alike. Go, just go get him. Like, do you want me to DM him? They're like, no, don't do that. Is there is the, is what's happening now influencing, or do you feel like it, it would or or will influence the storylines for season three? Yeah, I, I think we've grappled with that a little bit. Um, when we had our initial our initial meetings about what season three would look like it was mainly about the pandemic and should we depict the pandemic? Um, and I know our, our showrunner, uh, uh, NK, who's great, by the way, she's, she's amazing in every aspect. You know, I know she, she kind of put it on us to say, hey, like TV is a break for some people. Like they don't want to sit in the reality that they're in watching a reality that's showing them. So maybe things have changed. I know the past two months, we haven't been really together for the past two months, but everything that's going on, you know, I'd find it hard not to at least touch on something um, to that. Uh, and I know like we'll get together and we'll talk about, you know, what would change in season three if, if we can sort of pay homage like we did to Nipsey and, and, you know, some other elements in the show that's happened in real life. But it's so heavy right now that the fact that All American has sort of become that sort of cultural show, I would love to touch on it. Mm. Um, well, there's so much I, I still want to ask you about, uh, especially with the about face the NFL has done when it comes to the protests, <laughs> uh, your career. And I got I got some fun questions in, there, uh, in here also where I'm going to put you on the spot. But we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Spencer Pacinger. So um, I brought this up a little bit before the break about just the unrest that the country is in right now. Uh, I'll just ask you generally, Spencer, what are your thoughts about this moment uh, that we're in? I'm just, I'm so exhausted from it. Uh, and, I, and I feel like it's, I feel bad even saying that because like you want to have the energy to, to protest every single day and be out there for 10, 12 hours, you know, hooting and hollering. But, you know, with what, two weeks into this? And I was at that first, that first protest uh, Black Lives Matter protests uh, off of uh, Fairfax and and Third uh, Street, but yeah, it's 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 just been heavy on my heart. Knowing like I have a one year old son, or about to be one year old son, I have a three year old daughter, and just understanding like I have to have this conversation with them one day. And how do I how do I say that? How do I say like, hey, 
maybe dad didn't do the front lines, you know, all 14 days or having them questioning, questioning me down the road, like, why didn't you do more or whatnot? But I've always found solace in that, you know, as much as people are protesting on the front lines and yelling and screaming, there's also people that are working behind the scenes trying to advance the initiative. And I've, I've done a handful of things in, in terms of that aspect. But it's, it's just so, it's exhausting to go through the same thing what seems like month after month, year after year. Like, just understand, I'm, I, I told my wife this the other day, I was like, I'm tired of being reminded that I'm a black man. Like, I know it, I understand it, I understand the, the, the trials and tribulations that come to it. I don't need to keep seeing black men being slain or images of black trauma on Instagram and Twitter all day to like reaffirm my blackness or my commitment to the struggle. Like the fact that I have this skin on me means that I'm in and of it, in my opinion. So I'm tired, but it's, it seems like there's somewhat of a turning point coming. Uh, I don't know what that turning point is, but I think now that we have the attention of the masses, um, we can't go back. We can't afford to go back. You talked a second ago about it. you you want to be able to tell your kids, hey, I was out there. I did something. I worked. Um, consequently, though, uh, or subsequently, rather, how much have you given thought to the conversations you'll have about your children and the police? And what are you hoping those conversations might be like maybe 10 or 12 years from now? Hopefully in 10, 12 years now, there's a little bit more optimism in it than there is now. Um, you know, even, even this morning on my jog, you know, a police car drove by me and I immediately felt that tense, that tenseness, that like, keep your head down, don't look, you know, don't bring attention to yourself. And I, as somebody whose family, you know, on both sides of my family, I've had, I have officers, I have, you know, detectives, I've, you know, my uncle Earl Pacinger, rest in peace was the deputy chief of police of Los Angeles for 30 years. I'm talking second in charge to the chief of police. So, you know, under, understanding that it doesn't matter, like if the police know you're a pacinger at the end of the day, like they're going to see a black man and with that comes its own weight. But hopefully in 10 to 12 years, you know, there is more conversation between sides and we can come to some sort of agreement of whether it's the whole defunding that's happening right now or, or what have you, just coming to an agreement that like, or coming to a place myself that I can tell them, like, when you see a police officer, you don't have to tense up as much as you can. That's my goal. But right now, we're just not there. Like, we, we see them as an, as an oppressive force. And, you know, hopefully the things that I'm doing today can alleviate that in 10, 12, 20 years. One of the major developments in all of this was that NFL commissioner Roger Goodell issued an apology and said he was wrong uh, for, quote, not listening to players earlier uh, who were protesting police brutality. The name, of course, he did not mention was Colin Kaepernick. Uh, who started the protest, uh, started with his protest for police brutality back in, in 2016. What did you make of Roger Goodell's admission? I took nothing positive from it. It, it took 30 players to create a video for him to say yes, to say like, oh, let me sit down in the comfort of my own home and read cards off of the screen. Like we've been having this conversation with you for what, three, four years now. You don't need to read from a prompt. Like, you know why you're wrong. You know how long you've been wrong. You know who you've been wrong to. So, you know, don't do a PR stunt to say that you're on our side because that's just the hot thing to do right now. Leave your home. Put on a mask and go, go march with the people in your city. Go, go donate somewhere. Go do something to show us that you're in it and of it. Like, not sitting in the comfort of your own home reading cards from, from a prompt. It, it just didn't, it didn't necessarily feel genuine to me because you you could see literally where the period was at every sentence it was like i do stand with it i do i was like i don't what what are we doing with this like it's it's all optics at the end of the day it was tough to take because i i tend to and and people can say this is unfair and if you do okay you're allowed your opinion i tend to judge people about what they do when it's not convenient and it, I guess this sort of plays off that old adage about it's not what you do in the light that matters, but what you do in the dark. And to me, they had their moment to stand on the right side of history and they blew it. And there's no amount of apology that's ever going to get that moment back. Like it's, it's not coming back. Like you don't get a redo on something that was that important because now that public opinion seems to have shifted, that there's 
attention, the masses are calling for police reform, it's much easier and a much safer environment for Roger Goodell to say that. It's so safe, right? And it's like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, to to borrow from the old Chris Rock joke, I'm not going to give you credit for uh, taking care of your kids. Right. That's like you, you don't get to babysit your children. All right. They're yours. Right? Exactly. So you don't get to say like, hey, guess what? Police brutality is wrong. You knew that in 2016. So it's like so now it just rings a little hollow along those same lines, though. You were somebody uh, you were still in the league when Colin began his protests. And I believe you're on the Miami Dolphins when several players on uh, your team decided to take a knee and at least. Based off what I read, this seemed to be a very difficult decision for you not to kneel. Um, explain what your perspective was then and maybe where it is today. It was very difficult. Um, you know, guys like guys I still talk to today, you know, Jelani Jenkins, Mike Thomas, uh, Arian Foster. Like I, I literally talk to those guys weekly still to this day. And I just remember that leading up to that, where the question around the league and, and it seemed like on every single sports show was like, how many players going to nail? Who's going to nail? Who should nail? Who shouldn't nail? Like the, it was taking away from even prep from the game because it just had so much real estate in my brain. And I'm thinking about just the metrics of it, thinking about my stance on it. Like, obviously I believe that, you know, everything that Cap kneeled for is completely correct. Like he kneeled for the right reasons. And the fact that it's sort of been co-opted by this, like, disrespecting the flag or some troops bullshit like it's the fact that people are not listening to the message uh really hit home with me and for me being an undrafted guy you know signing one-year contracts league minimum every single year yes i can take a knee but then i can also be blackballed from the nfl and you know not work at what i've been working towards for you know the past 15 20 years of my life and it was a hard decision to decide not to kneel, but it actually compelled me to do more in my neighborhood, more in my community. Because I remember, um, I think it was LeBron James when they asked him, you know, are you planning on kneeling? And he said, no, we're past kneeling right now. And now it's time for action. And he got a lot of slack for that because it showed that, or at least appeared to show that he wasn't unified with the NFL players that took a knee. But in the end, it was, you know, kneeling is the first step. What can we do after that? And you know, even even dating back to that day, um, I still think about it. I still think about what would have happened to my life if, if I didn't. You know, I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't scared of, you know, what to come or what would have came from that. But at the time, you know, realizing that, you know, I have to provide for my family, have to make sure that, you know, they're okay at the end of the day, I decided not to do. Do you regret it? Some days. Some days I absolutely do. Uh, because I see, I see the impact that it's had. Um, and I know potentially even, you can even go back to connecting it to all American, you know, having a, having a show about a guy that took a knee, um, uh, potentially could have been a great storyline. And I don't know if we even be able to touch that down the road, but, um, just looking at the things that I've done, um, you know, on the right side of this, it would have just added to the story so much more if I did take a knee that day. Um, how do you think, uh, well, one, before I even get to this part, do you expect that Colin Kaepernick will ever play in the NFL? No. Um, I honestly don't think he will. I, I don't think he'll be given the chance. I don't, I don't think the NFL is capable of admitting they're genuinely wrong. Um, and that's, that's a problem with a lot of people today. We, we have a hard time admitting that we're wrong, even, even if it's the right thing to do. Uh, so I, I do think if he does get a chance, it will be down the road when just physically at the age that he's at as a quarterback, you probably can't produce at the same amount that he does. But, you know, I almost to a point don't want him to come back uh, because then, you know, he can sort of go off into the sunset as like, I was the martyr that started this movement uh, or one of the main spokes that, you know, got the world turning. But I think right now, if he were able to come back, it would just lend itself to so much more scrutiny for him. And I know he has the shoulders to carry it and I know that we will back him if he does. But I think if he does come back, he will be looked at it's as such on such a microscopic level that anything that he does will be, you know, hot topic for for that week or down to like even the socks that he wore, you know, years ago that people are still bringing up. I'm like, oh, you can live and learn. Like he knows not to do that anymore. But yeah, I think right now, like it, it might be beneficial for him not to come back and just and and become that staple in our community as a guy that sort of martyred himself for the greater good. 
See, Spencer, I'm petty. And the thing is, I don't, I, even though I, I say this with the caveat of knowing just like you, you know, this is a goal you work for your whole life. So I would never want to deny him that opportunity is that he worked for it. Exactly. Like I understand very much why he still wants to play. However, I would like to, I hope he doesn't come back to the NFL because I want the NFL to have to live with this mistake forever, forever. And the more that he's not in it, the worse they look at every turn and they will never be able to revise history. And I like that they have to sit in it. And so, um, and not to mention, I think his voice is just so much more powerful because he's not in the league. And we can constantly, I mean, think about it. They were trying to erase him. And sure enough, we're in this moment. All everybody can talk about is how he had it right the whole time. Going back to your your career for a second in the NFL, do you ever, drama aside with this, do you ever find, do you ever miss the NFL? Miss playing? No. <laughs> no. Was it was it that way the day that you left? Has it always been that way? Or or did maybe early on, did you even miss it? I would say that last year, it was completely a job. It was something I didn't enjoy doing, but it was a goal that I set for myself. And being six months away from reaching that goal, I was like, okay, I'm going to put myself through it. But when I got cut, you know, God bless Ron Rivera and the Carolina Panthers. You know, I, I thought I was going to play that last game. And before we were flying out to Atlanta, my bag to like pack all my equipment in wasn't in my locker. And I'm like, oh, yo, can y'all go grab my bag? Like, I'm flying to Atlanta because I'm playing with y'all. And that's when the Reaper came. It was like, hey, Coach Rivera wants to talk to you. And by, by literally two days before this, I had the epiphany that, like, I wrote a short film in the defensive meeting room that, like, we were, I think we were playing against, uh, I think it was Tampa or, or the Falcons. I want to say it was Tampa. And literally, I wrote this, like, four-page short film that I directed this past October that's coming out, like, later this week. But it was at that moment I was like, you know what? That my mind just went somewhere else for the past 25 minutes. I'm about to have the worst practice of my life because I didn't write down any defenses. But, like, I'm completely fine with that. And then a week later, I get cut. And Coach Rivera and, like, a handful of people are in the office. And they're like, hey, Spencer, we're so sorry. And I'm like, wait, oh, don't worry. Like, y'all go win it all, whatever. Like, I'm like, who do I talk to? Because it was, it was legit December, like, 29th. And I knew my friends in L.A. were having a New Year's Eve party. So I was like, all right, so, like, who do I talk to about getting back? Cause I'm trying to get back tomorrow because there's this thing that's happening. And my wife and my daughter were, were staying out there. They were with me for like two weeks out there and I come home and I'm like, Hey babe, you know, I just got released. And she's like, Oh no, no, no. I'm like, no, no, no. We're not doing it right now. We have six hours to pack up this entire apartment and get the fuck out of here. And she was like, all right, let's go. We packed up and we were on the next flight that morning. <laughs> you were like, see ya. Wouldn't want to be it though. Um, I was done with it. I was just tired of hitting people. I was tired of the, of the, of my body feeling a certain way for the majority of the year. It was just, writing was such, gave me such pleasure that I felt like playing football was only, I was only playing football to service that need. How aware were you of the fact that most NFL players, when they do decide to retire, are not very successful. I mean, I think it was that really daunting statistic about how 65% of them file for bankruptcy after they they retire. How aware were you of that? And, and how did that influence how you wanted to exit the league? Greatly. It greatly influenced it. Because, you know, I had guys that I played with that I'm talking captains. I'm talking, you know, ring of honor for the teams that we played with together, like just mountain of men, you know, crumbling being out of the league because they subscribe to the idea that like they made it but then when they're out they're 33 years old and they have nothing to wake up to they have nothing to go out and get that day it's just like yeah i'm this football player i've always been this football player and you know i see i see the guys that i always I always laugh at the guys that wake up and tweet like it's a great day to be a new york giant i'm like bro you've been retired for six years like what are you doing like go go golf and go do something and I just seeing that and knowing I just didn't want to be that guy um, definitely fueled me. But I, I'd say the first time I really thought about the other side not even being that bad is when I had a I had an internship with Quest Diagnostics after my after my season. And I'm talking like I had my little desk, I had my little coffee mug, like my little satchel with the papers and folders in it, doing like marketing internships with them. And I get home 
I get home at like six o'clock. I think it was like a Warriors game was on. Cracked like two or three beers that night, and was like, "This was a good day." Like I, I worked. I had team meetings and all that stuff with with our with my Quest team. But like I'm getting home, my body doesn't hurt. Had a couple beers, fell asleep. Woke woke up ten o'clock. I'm I'm back at work, and I was like, "This doesn't feel as bad as the coaches make it out to be." They always say like. You're never, you're never going to want to get a corporate job. You're never going to want to do that. Like, play as long as you can, all this stuff. But I'm sitting there, you know, in my little J. Crew uh, uh, plaid shirt, like, this is fine. Like, this is straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, uh, I think the most interesting stat that I came across about your playing career is that you have one career sack. My one. <laughs> so, your one, I need to know. When was it? Who was it? What happened? Uh, Kansas City Chiefs against Alex Smith. Um, that was actually one of the best games I ever played. I was guarding. It was either running back or receiver out the backfield on the other side of the field. And I saw he broke to the opposite side. And I think I got an ME in that, a mental error, because I knew I had my guy locked down, but I saw him scrolling. I'm going to scramble in. So I left my guy in space and took off running after him. And... I knocked him out of bounds. We like fell out of bounds and whatnot. And I got up and I remember thinking like, I think that might be a sack. Like he was behind right of scrimmage. And I like looked to my coach and I was like, was that a sack? And he looks, he goes, I think that was a sack. I'm like, all right, there we go. But you know, that was my, that was my one. I, I had so many other, other, other opportunities to, to have him, like, you know, slip out my hands or ball thrown away or whatever. But I'm, I'm proud of my one. Yeah. Well, the other interesting note uh, that I read about your playing career is apparently your Super Bowl ring was stolen. Yep. Yep. In the, in the same room that I'm sitting in. It still has not resurfaced? Still not resurfaced. So So what happened? It was it was last year, last March. Um, it was earlier that year. We just had, we just began rain like every other day. It felt like at the, at the top of 2019. And this is one of the first days that it was sunny. Um, the day before that, because of the rain, I found some molding in my in my ceiling in my office. So I spent the whole Saturday like taking down that roof, like that ceiling. But my contractor was like, "Yo, like we need to air this out, so just crack the window a little bit um, and let the air take it." So I did that, thought nothing of it. Uh, me and my wife, we went out to this farmers market, and I think we were just out there maybe a little bit too long. And on our way back, we were thinking, "Hey, let's grab some pizza before we go home." Um, pulled up to the house and I noticed the screen was down uh, off in the window. My, my wife, she's pregnant with my son at the time, was like, why is the screen down? And I told her, like, wait here. I ran inside and, like, screamed, like, terrified. I don't know what's about to happen. But they trashed the room. Um, they got a couple other things, but by far the Super Bowl ring was the first thing. Like, it was so crazy because, like, I don't keep my Super Bowl ring out. I don't keep I don't. I don't have it out. It was literally because two weeks before I took it to an elementary school day. Uh, career day and I usually keep it at my grandfather's house he keeps it safe tucked away and for two weeks I was like Yo, I really need to like get this back over there I don't like having it in the house so I, I tucked it in like the bottom shelf of my desk and they weren't looking for it honestly it's just I feel like because they flipped over the desk like everything fell out and they saw like the Tiffany bag um and obviously like that's such an iconic color that they're like oh this is something but I haven't seen it since um essentially the case is closed can't really the, apparently the police had an ID, but they're, they're so tied up with what they can do and, and attempting to do things right that they couldn't really do. They couldn't really do anything. So it's gone for right now. I, I know I can get a new one. Uh, I can get the Giants to make me a new one. But uh, one, I'm not trying to spend twenty what $5,000 on jewelry right now or, or ever. Um, hopefully, I, hopefully it turns up. But if not, maybe down the road, uh, I'll be in a position to where that amount of money doesn't mean anything to me and I can get another one. But yeah, I haven't seen it in over a year. If you have Spencer Pacinger's ring, get it back, man. Do the right thing. Please. Get it. We can do a cash reward. We can do something. But... See what I'm saying? Get it back. If it Does it have your like initials on it? Like something that you would know was yours? It says Pacinger, my number. It's, it's, it is my ring. Like, they attempted to try to pawn it a few days after they stole it, but the camera that the pawn shop had was like grainy. They couldn't, they couldn't tell anything from it. But um, pawn shops won't take that stuff because they know unless it's the person coming in whose name it is, 
and it's not listed on some type of directory that they have, like it's likely stolen. So it might be, it's honestly probably just in some kid's drawer right now that he's like, yo, I got the Super Bowl. Jeez. Unbelievable. Um, all right. My final football question, because it's always a hot topic. Is Eli Manning, your former quarterback, a Hall of Famer? I think he is. I think he is. It's seeing how he came to work every day. I know this doesn't really go into that process, but like you can't deny that playoff Eli is among the greats. And a, a lot of people say, oh, you know, there's his regular. So I think he has literally has like an even record of like, I think it's like 116 and 116, like the definition of 50-50. But um, nah, I got to go with my guy. He is definitely a Hall of Famer, you know, to beat the GOAT, that's Tom Brady, like the arguably the, the greatest quarterback to ever play the game, to beat him not once but twice in the Super Bowl. And uh, his stats speak for itself. Like he, I don't think he's first ballot, but I think, I think that's going to be the deciding factor of like the decision of if he gets into the Hall of Fame will be like, okay, he's not first ballot, but we'll give him a second ballot. That's going to like solidify his like, for all you guys, I think he's not in the Hall of Fame. Like we're just going to make him work for it for like one more year. <laughs> That'll make him feel better. Um, well, you, you, you have a All-American under your belt. Um, what's next for you? I mean, is this something, it's, you start out the gate with a project about your life. Uh, do you want to continue to build material around sports or around your life? Or would you like to go in a new direction? Like what's sort of a little bit of the, the vision board from here on out? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, I've been asked this question a lot. It's like, is this enough? Is, is this show like what you want your name to be in this industry? I'm like, no, like I would love for this to be my first project in the industry. Um, but by no means my last, um, I've written two features already, you know, both of them being shopped right now, doing a handful of scripted and unscripted projects. But the, the, how I write and, and what I want to write is, is just sort of broadening the spectrum of, you know, black culture and, and specifically my experience in this world where a lot of, a lot of things that are going nowadays are always tied to some type of police brutality or some type of struggle or whatever. And I'm like, no, like, I want to have fun too. I want to see black people just having fun and not having to worry about the blue lights in the background or, or the tension that comes with being black in America. Like I want to show so many stories uh, across the spectrum of blackness instead of just police brutality and struggle. So a lot of what I'm writing is geared towards that. Um, I, I look, I look at guys like, you know, Gambino and Jamar Carmichael and, and Issa Rae as, you know, just telling stories of blackness and it not being, not having to feel like you're educating another community about what it means to be black. It's just like, no, this is a story that's unique to us. And if we like it, I'm all for it. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in and of this industry now, as much as I said, I was a professional football player. Like I pride myself in saying I'm a TV and film producer now. All right, before I uh, get you out of here, Spencer, a little game I like to play with all the guests on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It is called This or That. You get two choices, pick one. You strike me as a, a guy who's pretty sure of himself, so I have no doubt that you are going to do this and ace this beyond measure. Who's judging me? Uh, yes, I will shit. judge you for your choices. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Rub them hands together. All right, first question. Since you went to Oregon, Joey Harrington or Marcus Mariota? Uh, Mariota. Yeah, all right. Uh, I live with a Lions fan, my husband. I just pray for him all the time. <laughs> he, had to, he had to endure different years of Joey Harrington than, than most <laughs> of the Oregon uh, faithful. Uh, Tecmo Bowl or Madden? Madden. Okay, I'll say you're probably too young for Tecmo Bowl. Oh, <laughs> I forget this. Like You're way too young for this. Uh, remember the Titans or any given Sunday? Any year of Sunday. Yeah. Any year of Sunday. Yeah. Now, did you feel like that that, that was an accurate, maybe not accurate, but but it was a a, a realistic portrayal of, of the NFL? It was realistic. There were definitely some personalities in there, but the, I would tell you the funniest moment that I've watched in that movie now, having played, was when Lawrence Taylor says, don't drop me. I'm worth a million that's dollars. Nothing. I'm like, that's nothing, man. like, that's, that's nothing to that. Yeah. I, I've said that before. And I was like, I realize it sounds massive ditty. I realize how it sounds, but like y'all would be shocked how much a million dollars doesn't get you. <laughs> like you, you would be really shocked And <laughs> yeah, them taxes, them fees. Like y'all would be shocked. Exactly. Uh, along those same lines, 
So Julia Washington, which was LL's character in Any Given Sunday, or Darnell Jefferson, Omar Epps in the program. Oh, I'm going with Omar Epps. The program, the program was a sleeper. Not a lot of people like remember the remember the program, but that was up there. <laughs> uh, Tom Brady or Joe Montana? I gotta go with what I've seen. Tom Brady. Tom Brady. I mean, you also beat him. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I got one on him, but like seeing some of the things that he's done is is Tom Brady. All right, and finally, the coup de gras: Fresh Prince or Martin? Martin. You said Martin. that like right. <laughs> My, I mean, it doesn't matter what episode. It doesn't matter where it is in its runtime and then playing. Like if it's on, you gotta watch it. You gotta watch it. Like it, the fact that it's, it's still being referenced today and and sort of like the the staple of, of black sitcoms. Like it's it's Martin all day. Yeah, it. Uh, I, I feel like it's in syndication on like seven channels because it is Martin is literally always on <laughs> you know he's definitely getting those checks he is definitely getting those checks as is the rest of the cast um well spencer thank you so much for joining me and for sharing um your story and and much success with everything you do and more importantly shout out to the bag and breakfast sandwich at hilltop cafe <laughs> man. shout out to that that might be tomorrow's breakfast man that that sandwich y'all i'm telling you on my mama, as they say. <laughs> it is Can I, I, I do, if you don't mind, I, I do want to give a shout out to my wife, if that's all right. Of course. Um, yeah. My wife, my wife, Blair Pacinger, she just started a company called Post 21. Uh, you can find it on Post 21 Shop, uh, both on her website and on Instagram. But it's model, it's named after, obviously, 1929, um, uh, 1921 um, Oklahoma riots, uh, Tulsa riots. And it's just a space. It's a really dope space for Black creatives, celebrating Black creatives. So you can find anything from earrings to to furniture to wine. That's all curated and, and created by Black creatives. So, um, yeah, I, I, I had to say I had to play. No, that's dope. You 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 had me at wine. That's dope. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, much success to you. Much success to your wife and everybody. Check out Post Twenty One. Um, Spencer's getting out of here, but y'all know what's coming next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. There were a number of things I didn't have on my 2020 bingo card. Definitely didn't think we'd be knee deep in a pandemic. Also did not have Jaheem as being a Trump supporter or that Taylor Swift would be more of an ally to the black community than Kanye West. And while I know we've reached some pretty low lows in this nation, I also didn't have a 17 year old murderer being turned into a hero. Even though Kyle Rittenhouse murdered two people who were protesting in the wake of 29-year-old Jacob Blake being shot seven times in the back by the Kenosha, Wisconsin police, he has become a darling of conservatives who are fucking shameless. So fuck it, I'm bothered that we've reached such a shitty point in this country where even murdering people in cold blood is split among political lines. I'm not exaggerating about the right turning Kyle Rittenhouse into a modern day Batman. Our goofy racist ass president defended Rittenhouse claiming it was self-defense. A Christian crowdfunding site has raised $327,000 for Kyle Rittenhouse, which has doubled their initial goal. Ann Coulter, who always is in the top five of worst fucking people on earth, tweeted, I want him as my president. Fox News TV host Tucker Carlson said Rittenhouse was forced to turn his gun on two innocent people because if he didn't maintain order, no one else would. Keep in mind, he shot these people when a whole ass militarized police force were on the streets of Kenosha. Now I'm going to pose a stupid question that I already know the answer to just for the sake of being dramatic. Can you imagine what would have happened if a 17-year-old black kid crossed a state line with an AR-15 to defend a city he doesn't even live in and murder two white people? And that last part, by the way, is actually true. Both of Kyle Rittenhouse's victims were white. For one, 
there's footage of Rittenhouse walking right past the cops with an assault rifle strapped to his chest right after he murdered both of these people. Walk right past him. And the cops didn't even blink. Rittenhouse got all the way home and turned himself in later. Now, we all know none of this is happening if this is a young black man that we're talking about. Realize that black people get killed by the police for selling cigarettes, asking why they're being pulled over, riding a bike, sleeping and just generally existing. But Kyle Rittenhouse murdered two people and white America has turned him into Cesar Chavez. As I continue to say about this country, this isn't who we are. This is who we've always been. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.